Let's give thanks for God's provision in our life. Our Father, we thank you for uh, blessing us, Lord, with every uh, gift in the heavenly places and also always providing for our families and caring for us in that way. Lord, thank you that you uh, supplied us even this week with food on our tables and uh, grace, Lord, new morning mercies each day. Lord, please bless uh, the work of your church. We pray that you would uh, extend the gospel as we give to that and be glorified, Lord. And now as we open your word, would you uh, uh, give us a joy in it and help us to understand it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, the verses on the screen will go a little further than I uh, decided to, to preach, so we are not going to include the section on uh, verses 11 to 13. I'm going to take that with the next uh, section, so I'll just be reading Hebrews 3 verse 12 to 4 verse 10. This is God's holy and inspired, infallible word. Let's give our attention to it as it is read. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world... For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let's ask for God's blessing now on his word. Lord, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable, our rock and our redeemer, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Yesterday 
morning, as we heard a little bit about this morning, a war began between Palestine and Israel. And I saw a very sad story about a grandmother who was captured, 85 years old, Yaffa Adar, Holocaust survivor. You imagine making it through the Holocaust only to, at the near the end of your life, be captured by Hamas. And her daughter, Adva, was posting things online saying to her own government and to anyone who would listen, please return my grandmother. She's 85 years old. She has medication that she needs. Please send her back. Two weeks ago would have been the conclusion, it was the conclusion of Yom Kippur. And at the very end of Yom Kippur, there's a prayer that uh, those who are uh, observant, which uh, Yafa Adar is a, uh, a Zionistic Jew, so I think she would have been observant. Uh, there's a prayer where uh, Jews pray saying, at the end of next year, we will enter into Jerusalem rebuilt. So there's this a desire to see God rebuild and to uh, bring things to a completion, to a wholeness. Uh, but Jews are looking for a resolution in a particular land and into, in a specific place. And as we'll see this evening, we also have uh, a, a, a anticipation of God making all things new in a land, but it is not just Israel, but a whole new Jerusalem, a whole new city. Uh, Andrew Peterson sings a beautiful song that's kind of a, a rendition of that prayer at the end of Yom Kippur. It goes like this. To that city that we long for, that we feel so far away, where the dawn will drive away our fears, and we will meet in the new Jerusalem someday. Uh, Andrew Peterson is not saying that, uh, that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, but he's longing for that last day when the sun will rise for this last time, uh, when Christ will return the whole company of all those who have died in Christ will be resurrected, and finally there will be peace and the rest of God. And Israelis, as they enter this war, they have been wondering, where is the rest of God? When will there finally be peace in the promised land? And this points us, it drives us to say, where will we finally find rest and the eternal rest that comes truly only in the Lord. I want us to see three things this evening. First, what is the rest of God? The author of Hebrews assumes that you kind of know what he's talking about when he speaks about the rest of God. Second, I want us to uh, see very simply how we enter that rest. And then third, to see the Lord of rest. First, what is the nature of the rest of God? Second, how we enter that rest, and then third, who is the Lord of Sabbath or of rest? Well, we want to make sure we're situated in the context of the flow of the book of Hebrews. You remember that the author of Hebrews is speaking to those who heard the gospel. It was like they heard that spreading of the seed that Jesus speaks about on different soils. Some people received it with joy. It gave fruit quickly. And then the temptation is that they lose their hope, lose their confidence. 
it will say later in the book of Hebrews, that they rejoiced that they could be suffering alongside other Christians. They had endured really hard persecution, and they rejoiced to even have the plundering of their possessions because it says they knew that they had another city, another place where they were headed, and there was their ultimate resting place. But they're tempted now with different voices, with different uh, doubts that are coming into their hearts. Other voices are creeping in, and they're asking questions about Jesus. Is he really God? Has he really come to fulfill the prophets? Uh, What about angels? We've seen the, the strange fascination with angels. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't be taken with angels. Angels serve Christ. They're ministers of God. Worship Christ. Consider Jesus, the author of Hebrews has told us. He's infinitely greater than Moses. Moses is like the house. Jesus is the builder of the house. Worship Christ, and it's by being focused on him that you will be enabled not just to start off the Christian life well, but to persevere all the way to the end. So I want us to consider then as he enters this section on the rest of God first, a compare and contrast with Israel's rest and ours. Compare and contrast between Israel's rest and ours. I'm not going to take the passage in the order of the verses. I'm going to gather it somewhat thematically, but I'll tell you where I'm reading as we, as we walk through this passage. But again, the author assumes when he speaks about God's rest, he assumes you know the flow of the Old Testament story. And so I'm going to uh, rehearse some of the things that are spoken about Israel's rest and show how in some ways it's similar to the church as we rest, but in other ways there's a contrast. So first, what are some of the similarities? Well, you remember that God created in six days, and then it says he rested from all his labors. And when Moses gives the Ten Commandments spoken by God on Mount Sinai, he grounds the call to Israel to rest based on this pattern. He says, Exodus 20, verse 11, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And made it holy. God was telling Israel that, like his work of six days, all of creation could be described as a six day work week. And Israel was headed somewhere, they were going toward God's rest. If Adam and Eve had obeyed God's command in the garden, they could have taken from the fruit of the tree of life and they would have lived eternally. But in their sin, they're cast out of the garden, they're cursed. And they're told to wait for God's eternal rest. They were rehearsing the reality that their lives were not defined by their six days of work. They were more themselves in some way when they were resting on the seventh day, when they were looking forward to where they were headed toward their destination in God's resting. They were not defined merely by this work and this life reality. 
I'm going to be careful when I speak somewhat uh, uh, critically about what work can become for us. I want you to know that I know about the goodness of work. God has made work as a good gift. He's told us uh, that it is a blessing to work. Martin Luther talked about how uh, different vocations are like the faces of God, if you're familiar with him writing about this. When you have a piece of toast in the morning, it's as if uh, the baker and uh, the farmer and everyone who worked, the the person who drove the bread, all these different people work together to feed you, right? And this is God working himself through all these different vocations. And so work in itself is very, very good. But Israel was tempted to lose and forget who they were in those six days of work. And so the Lord says, remember on the seventh day where you are going. You will not just work, 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 and then die. If you're familiar with Les Miserables, the musical, it opens up with these prisoners, with these slaves. Jean Valjean is in a pit uh, three, uh, uh, his, his number is what he's uh, known as, 24601, and he sings this song as his master looks over him. Look down, look down, you'll always be a slave. Look down, look down, you're standing in your grave. And Israel is told in the Old Testament, this is not your reality. You're not just working your days, work, 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 work work, work, and then one day just going into your grave. You're headed somewhere eternally. Remember that God worked and then he rested. And keep the Sabbath because you're looking forward to that reality. Second comparison and similarity between the church and Israel is the the grounding in Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. It's one of my favorite sections of the five books of Moses. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt and the Lord God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the day of rest. Uh, The seventh day for the Israelites was a day of remembrance. It was a day where they remembered what God had done, the great acts of God, that God had acted powerfully, had overcome Pharaoh, had shown his greatness over Pharaoh, and he's brought them out of slavery, and he tells them with this reality, on the day of rest, remember who you are. Do not forget your identity. I think we can restlessly work without any sense of where we're headed and kind of fall into the temptation that Israel had where we make ourselves slaves again. We forget the rest that God had accomplished for them. Justin Whitney Earley puts it this way in his book, Habits of the Household. Sabbath looks at the tired, overworked American and smiles with compassion, inviting us into a rhythm of renewal that we desperately need. Sabbath rest is a firm reminder that the real work of the world has been finished in Jesus' death on the cross. We have much that God has called us to, but we don't have anything to prove. And so there's a similarity between the working and the looking forward on the seventh day that grounds the creation story and God's resting, and then the salvation story. There's a similarity between Israel's working and resting and our headed, the fact that we are headed towards someone, we're remembering our identity as Christians. But there's a couple differences that I want to draw out also in describing the rest of God. Very simple and obvious one is that we rest and worship on Sundays. 
The people of the Old Testament had this mysterious future uh, Messiah that they were looking forward to. They knew he was coming, but they didn't know his name. And you as a Christian look back knowing Christ as the, the Messiah who's accomplished your rest, and you rest now on Sundays at the beginning of your week. The Israelites were, were working, 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 and then finding rest at the end. You get your rest at the beginning. You get to orient all of your week based on rest. You get to work out of your rest, looking forward to what God has accomplished for you in Christ. But the second difference in the accomplishment of our redemption has to do with the eternal nature of the rest. And this comes up explicitly now in our passage, chapter 4, verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The author of Hebrews is telling the people receiving this letter, reminding them of the days that Israel finally came into the land. You remember that some of them had fallen in the wilderness because of unbelief. That comes up in our text also. There were sadly carcasses of the people who had not believed the message. Somewhere on the way to the promised land, they had disbelieved. They had not believed in the goodness of God. We remember the story of those who came right up to the edge of the land. They sent spies in, and God said, I will take you into this land. I will secure this land for you. But they disbelieved and said, the giants are too big. It's hopeless. Let's not go in. And because of that unbelief, they fell in the wilderness. But they finally do come into the land. And here's the description from the end of the book of Joshua. This is so beautiful as God accomplishes a temporary rest for them. Joshua 21, 43 and 44. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given them all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. You have this beautiful moment of sort of a temporary rest where Israel looks around and can breathe finally. God has given them this land and they can breathe as they look around. Their, their enemies have been conquered for them and they enter into this rest. How long did it last? Flip into the pages of Judges and immediately you find them building idols, turning their hearts away from the Lord and conquering bands, breaking into the promised land and carrying them off. And the author of Hebrews is saying, this is proof. When, uh, when David interprets this later on in Psalm 95, this is proof that this rest was not permanent for them. And in the same way, dear Christian, you are called to see that your rest is not of this creation. This world is going to disappoint you. Family members will oppose you. Your job and the things that you had hoped would go a certain way will be broken and in many ways empty. And the, the call to you this evening is to see that Joshua did not give permanent rest to God's people. 
Only in Christ do you have this lasting, permanent city. And your heart is told tonight, look to that place. Look away from this creation to that eternal land that Jesus secures. Well, second then, how do we enter this secure rest? If there's similarities between Israel and the church in terms of working and resting, looking forward to eternity in heaven, there's similarities in salvation in that God has rescued us and brought us out and sent us on a course to heaven, and yet differences in that uh, now we rest on Sundays and now we have this permanent rest secured for us in Christ. How do we get that? How does it become ours? It's very simple. You have to believe. Notice all the references to faith in this passage. Chapter 3, 19. We see they were unable to enter. This is the wilderness generation. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 2. The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Chapter 4, verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. And the disobedience of chapter 3.18 is interpreted for us, again, very clearly by verse 19. We see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. There is one sin that keeps you from God's rest, and that's unbelief. I think sometimes we take unbelief very seriously as Christians. Uh, We think that doubt is kind of ordinary and maybe kind of a courageous thing to be uh, doubting. And certainly there are passages... Uh, that tell us that we will never accomplish perfect and full, robust faith. But unbelief in and of itself is not a virtue. It's something dangerous for us. And the call this evening is to enter into God's rest by faith. One of the best descriptions of faith comes in Westminster Confession 14, section 2. It says this, By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatever is revealed in the Word. For the authority of God himself speaks there, acts differently upon that which each particular passage contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings. The book of Hebrews has some threatenings that intends you to respond in faith with a certain kind of trembling, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. And then it goes on to say, But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Accepting, receiving, resting. That is the essential nature of faith. And I would just ask you this evening, what is keeping you from the rest of God? When you hear the promises of God, the the Bible is calling you not to just hear promises kind of above you, you learning about them, but you to actually embrace them, you personally to receive them. What does your heart do when God's promises are extended to you? Does it say, Lord, I have sinned too grievously for your rest to be mine. I thought I would be in a different place by now. Does, God, does, God promise to you, does, does God's promise to you seem too good to be true? Maybe other people can enter God's rest, but not me. 
God is saying tonight to you, today, as long as it's called today, respond, believe, receive, accept the promise of God's rest. One of the illustrations that I've used a few times to to help explain what faith is, is an Uber ride, if any of you have done this before, ride share of some form. Uh, Faith is like getting into an Uber ride. You have to know that a driver comes when you download the app. We talk about faith having knowledge. You have to know that when you put the app on your phone, someone is coming towards your house. It's pretty remarkable. You have to assent to that happening. You have to say yes to that person coming to give you a ride. But third, and for me, terrifying the times I've done it, the person opens the door and says, get in my car. It's not enough for you to know about this ride. You actually have to get in the car with a stranger and trust your life to him. Who knows what this person's going to do to you? I'm sure there's been horror movies about what Uber drivers do to their ride people. Not that you should watch that. Um, But who knows the, the trustworthiness of this person driving you, right? Christ is not like this. He's proven himself worthy of your faith. He's done what's necessary to take you into rest. And he says, he opens the door of salvation. He says, get in, receive, rest, trust. It's not a message just hanging out over you. You yourself embrace it, accept it, receive it, and rest in it. The mother crying out for her grandmother to be sent back by Hamas desires a kind of peace in this world, a restoration. And certainly I hope that that grandmother is returned. But tonight you can enter into God's rest. It's offered to you particularly for you to enjoy the very rest of God, to receive it, to put your trust in Christ and enter. Well, finally, I want us to see who is the Lord of our rest Jesus tells his disciples as he's getting ready to leave, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. I am going to prepare a place for you. The disciples say, we do not know where you're headed. This is John 14. And Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. He's saying, I'm gonna do what's necessary to prepare an eternal resting place for you. He's saying about himself, Joshua brought the people into a temporary land. I'm taking you to a place where you'll never suffer bandits coming in and stealing your things or stealing you and carrying you off to another land. I go to prepare a place for you. Isn't life disappointing? Isn't so much about this world grievous and broken and our hearts long for this eternal rest that Jesus promises he's accomplished. Well, how did he do that? How did Christ secure our final rest? Jesus says in Matthew 11 very famously, come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Notice Jesus doesn't say, come and get rest from me. He says, come to me. Sinclair Ferguson 
points out in the whole Christ that oftentimes we have the tendency to separate the benefits of Christ from Christ himself. And Jesus is saying to you tonight, I am the Lord of your rest. When you come to me, you rest in me. He gives not just rest for your body, he says. He says, when you carry the yoke that he has taught us, you find rest for your soul, deep rest that goes deeper than bodily rest. Well, how did he purchase this rest? Christ was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And it says in the Gospels that he, along with the Father, has been working since the beginning And he worked and he worked and he worked throughout his ministry. He did everything that the Father commanded him. He rejoiced in doing the will of the Father. That was his delight. But his task in this life was working and working and working. And I was reflecting this week on what it meant that when he says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay down his head. It's as if he was homeless and had no place of rest in this world. And why? So that you tonight, as you look to him, as you put your hope and your trust and your future in his hands, can have eternal rest secured, deep rest, rest that goes all the way to your soul. See, the perfect son of the father found no place to lay his head And he goes to a cross for people who have distrusted, for people who have doubted. And he says, come to me for your rest. Look nowhere else. This world over and over again will disappoint you. Find your eternal rest in me. Andrew Peterson, again, a wonderful song describing the Saturday when Jesus was taken down from the cross, uh, sings these words, and we'll, we'll close with this. They took his body down. The man who said he was the resurrection and the life was lifeless on the ground now. The sky was red as blood along the blade of night. As the Sabbath fell, they shrouded him in linen. They dressed him like a wound. The rich man and the women, they laid him in the tomb. Six days shall you labor. The seventh is the Lord's. In six he made the earth and all the heavens, but he rested on the seventh. God rested. He said it was finished. In the seventh day he blessed it. God rested. What was Christ's rest in this world? Being laid in a tomb. And as he's resurrected, as he bursts out of the grave in victory on the third day, he certifies to you that as you put your hope in him, as your faith is anchored to Jesus, his rest already that he's enjoying in heaven becomes yours. And he says, I never am going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. So look away from any other source of your peace. I have walked through the work that is necessary to earn your rest. I've secured it completely. Put your whole hope and trust in me and know that you will never be cast out as you rest in the Lord of our Sabbath rest. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we pray that whatever distractions, whatever entanglements, Lord, things that cause us to doubt and to fear, you would... Remove them, Lord. Show us the glory of our Savior, even as we come to this table, Father. 
Help us not only to hear about your rest, Lord, but to actually taste it tonight, to actually taste and see that you are good as we come to the table of your accomplished salvation for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.